0: In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon His holy Prophet Muhammad and the purified members of His household and progeny. Allahu Muhammad wa Muhammad. Sisters, brothers, respected viewers, Assalamu alaikum jamee'an wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. And welcome once again to our. Life, the Islamic Answer series, in which we are trying to extract principles of of living Islamically in a complex world directly from the original scriptures and sources of uh, Islam. You will remember that we are still in the theme of knowledge and rationality in Islam, And we were under the heading of the teacher or the scholar in Islam. And after a somewhat longer introduction where we covered a number of topics, we were now discussing the characteristics and the traits of the scholar and the teacher in Islam. We spoke about the importance of God-fearing. We spoke about the importance of the scholar understanding the social responsibility that they have once they start carrying knowledge. And we said that when we talk about scholar, when we talk about teacher, the easy or by default attitude that we're going to have is to use this to look for these attributes and these characteristics in others. When in reality now that we understand the importance of knowledge and reason in Islam, we now carry enough knowledge ourselves that we need to apply as much of these characteristics to ourselves. So before I look for these characteristics in others, before I start judging and assessing other people to see are they an appropriate teacher? Are they an appropriate scholar? Are they meeting all the standards of a scholar in Islam? I need to start looking at myself to see what am I doing to move in this direction and to ensure that I meet, that I match this standard, these characteristics and these traits that are mentioned for someone who carries knowledge in Islam. After we spoke about a number of characteristics, we saw the importance of making sure that for instance, when you carry knowledge, that you act based on the knowledge that you carry. Now that you know, you must act in accordance with, in alignment with that knowledge. And to a large extent, this is clearly a more individual dimension of knowledge. This affects me. It has to do with me. So it benefits me that I act in a way where my conduct, where my behavior matches my knowledge. I know that something is haram and I act accordingly. I know that something is recommended and I act accordingly. So I'm the one who's going to benefit and I'm the one who's going to be harmed by my behavior to the extent that my behavior matches or not what I know. That part, inshallah, is very clear. We also confirmed it and established it well, but inshallah, that part is clear and well known. The part that we wanted to add to this, the dimension that now we've been discussing for a couple of weeks and we're still going to build on today, is that there's also a social dimension. So beyond the fact that I have an individual responsibility, an individual duty or burden towards myself, whether I like it or not, I now carry a duty and a responsibility towards others. There's a social dimension to the fact that you carry knowledge. If people know that you carry knowledge, they recognize you as someone who carries knowledge, then there's even more of a duty and even more of a responsibility because in their minds, whether they're aware of this or not, whether this is conscious or not, you represent religion and you represent knowledge to them now. Regardless of whether you like this or not, regardless of whether you accept this duty for yourself or not, if others view you in this way, you are now carrying an additional burden and an additional responsibility that goes beyond just yourself. And that's why we started to see the hadith, the narrations, that clearly start talking about the person who carries the knowledge, the scholar. When they get reward, they get much more reward. And when they get punishment, they get much more punishment. This is because there is an additional dimension carrying knowledge that goes beyond just you and what you represent for yourself there's a social dimension now you have to be aware of this if people don't necessarily carry that image of you that you are representative of religion that you do carry knowledge you're still carrying a burden because you know that you carry the knowledge and god knows that you carry the knowledge so now you're lacking towards the responsibility of that knowledge it's not as bad as when people recognize you as being a scholar or someone who is studying religion or somehow related or associated with religion. It's not as bad as, but there's still a duty. Now you are carrying that knowledge. You have a duty towards that knowledge. If people don't know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows. And you know that you have more knowledge than people are recognizing and uh, sorry associating. Alaykum as rahmatullah. So, we said this is the dimension that we started to talk about. So, how does this translate into our behavior? The scholar's behavior at the level of speech. We said this, the speech of the scholar or the speech of the teacher is no longer neutral. Imam Ali alayhi salam was saying the speech of the scholar is either a cure or an illness. It's either a remedy or a disease. There's no, no in-between. No more neutral. At the level of the slip-up or the mistake of the scholar, they don't only harm themselves, they harm others as well. We saw that the Ahadith were saying that the scholar, when they are good, they are the best of what we find in this world. And when the scholar is bad, they are the worst of what we find in this world. So they represent the extremes. And then you will remember the ahadith that we're talking about from Imam Ali, from the Holy Prophet when they say, two people have broken my back. And you will remember the image that they gave. Those people, we can't do anything about them because they influence people so much. One of them is a scholar who openly performs sins, who is openly evil, openly bad. And the other one is the person who is a good worshiper, but they have absolutely no knowledge. So they are a foolish worshiper. So they attract people to their foolishness with their worship. And the other person pushes people away from knowledge and religion because of their sins. Right? You'll remember these ahadith. We added to this, to the social responsibility, the importance, and we're not going to repeat all the ahadith in this, that had to do with God-fearing, the importance of piety, the importance of not being obsessed, attached to worldliness, And prioritizing the afterlife. All of these are themes that we saw a number of hadith about. And so the last time we met, we talked about the importance of making sure we understand that the scholar is an intermediary between us and God. And that's why we saw the hadith that spoke again about the social burden, about the social responsibility. Where do you get your truths from? Where do you get your religion from? You're getting it from the scholars. You're getting it from the teacher, this person that you're allowing to be your teacher in religion, in matters of spirituality. You will remember the hadith that the imam was saying, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed to one of his prophets by the name of Daniel, that do not make a scholar or a teacher who is in love with this world as the intermediary between you and I. Because those are the people who steal, they're like pirates, they're thieves. They steal away, they block away people's love towards me. They put you on a different path. And then Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala was talking about the punishment that he reserves to such teachers or scholars. He said, the least of the punishments that I reserve for them is that I remove the sweetness of my intimate worship from their hearts so that this person no longer feels the pleasure of worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, this is the, the, the first or the smallest of the punishments I reserve for them. And we said this is a calamity for someone like this who loses the religious experience, who loses the spirituality of worship. Worship becomes dry. And we said this is also important for us. This is an indication when we worship Allah Taala, when we read the Qur'an, when we go to majalis, there are, this is a recurrent theme that we hear a lot. People are constantly complaining, constantly saying, how come is it that when I perform my worship, when I perform my prayers, when I read the Qur'an, when I go to a majlis, the end result of this is that I do not feel anything. There is dryness. I feel dry. It's just a ritual that I perform. I stand, I sit, I go to the majlis, I read the words of the Quran, but I don't feel anything. Well, in that hadith, we have one of the clues. The clue is that you're too obsessed with this world. You're not leaving any space in your heart for anything else. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, the more you do that, the more I will put a punishment in our world. We may not think of this as a punishment. But this is a huge punishment. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I will remove the sweetness of intimately worshipping me from their hearts. So that when you worship, the worship is dry. You don't feel anything. So this means, if, this is, if we find ourselves in this situation, it means we have work to do. You have to go out of your way now to recreate an environment where you're not so fixated and obsessed with this world that there's no room for God in your heart. That the the worship is not just an empty ritual. It's not just dry. You just perform the ritual. You just perform the prayer. You stand, you sit, you just open and you read the words of the Qur'an. You just attend the majlis. But it doesn't really affect you in any way. This becomes dry worship. Okay, so this was a number of ahadith. We spoke about this. We spoke about the ahadith that have to do with the teacher or the scholar. At the end of times, we saw the Holy Prophet saying there will come a time when my people, when my nation will only recognize a scholar if he's wearing certain clothes or a teacher if they're wearing certain clothes. They only understand or recognize the Quran if it's recited in a certain voice. They will only remember worship in the month of Ramadan. Right? We said this is dangerously close to what we see. Again, huge warning. And of course, once again, this is a social burden. On one side you can blame the scholars for acting in a way perhaps that encourages this. But you also have to blame the nation, the Holy Prophet says. That this is the only thing they recognize. They wouldn't even recognize a scholar. He's right there in front of them, but he is not matching the appearance of the scholar they have in mind. This worship that we talk about, they only remember it once a year. It's the month of Ramadan, suddenly we remember there's a Quran, there's worship. We're going to try to remember God a little bit in our lives. If you find yourself in this situation, we're matching the description the Holy Prophet is giving. This is dangerously close to what we see today. We spoke about another series of hadith. Some of them were talking about how the worst of punishments, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says the worst of punishments are going to be reserved in the afterlife for the bad scholars. And we spoke about a hadith that emphasized, that underlined how True knowledge is equal to more fear of God. The more knowledge you gain, the more this has to lead to you feeling that you have a relationship with your Creator, with your Lord. If you accumulate knowledge, you attend lectures and you read the books and you listen to scholars. and, And all this does is that it piles up information, megabytes of information in your mind. You can now recite the events of history, and the names of people, and certain theories, and names of books, and okay. What is it doing to you internally? What is it doing to you spiritually, to your heart? Do you feel closer to God? Do you feel that you fear God more? Do you feel like you want God to like you, to be pleased with you? If not, then there's an issue with this type of knowledge. There's something missing. All the knowledge is supposed to lead to that one thing. Sometimes directly, when you talk about you have to feel like you are close to God, that God is actually seeing you and hearing you. That's directly. And sometimes it's very indirect to things like we live in today's world. For us, for instance, you might go to school and study biology. You may not think about God right away when you're studying biology. You might think about God very indirectly. The more you understand how it works inside a cell, the more one day it'll click how great God is, how much knowledge he has, how much power he has, how much wisdom he has. That he has created the cell in this way and you have billions of them in your body. And this is all going on all at the same time, all the time. And that's how it functions and we're not even aware of it. That's one way to get closer to God. Someone else might see this and say, this proves there is no God. This proves that there's just matter and just biology and just chemistry and just physics. Same knowledge. Are you just accumulating information or is the information affecting you? If the information brings you closer to God, this is Islamic knowledge and this is the knowledge that all the hadith are talking about. It doesn't necessarily need to be called fiqh or usul or aqaid or tafsir so long as it's bringing you closer to God, this is Islamic knowledge. This is the ultimate purpose of all knowledge. Okay? So all of this we've covered until now. Insha'Allah, today we continue with the characteristics of the scholar. The next one was highlighting, because we've talked about all of this, highlighting the social burden, the social responsibility of carrying knowledge. And we said one of the To highlight the fact that we're not only talking about the big scholar who spent 70 years studying religion. We're talking about ourselves too. When you are in a minority situation like we are in these societies, whether you like it or not, whether you remember this or not, don't you think that when people see you, they associate you with Islam? It means you carry a social responsibility. If you go to a country where everyone is Muslim, you don't stand out. No one thinks about you as you are a representative of this religion. You are a representative of Ahlul Bayt. No one thinks about this. But here, you have to. Whether you like it or not, whether you're aware of this or not, whether you want to accept this responsibility or not, this is how you are actually seen. In fact, this is how people see you. From your name, from your look, People have already automatically associated you with religion. You are Islam. You are Ahlul Bayt. You steal, Islam steals. You insult people, Islam insults people. You are the proof now. Before this, when you go to another country where you're not the minority, where everyone is like this, you may not think about this. You don't need to take on this responsibility. Here you have no choice. Just by being here, by being different, you stand out. And that's why we say, sometimes you want to accept, you step up. You want to take a leadership role. You want to take on that responsibility. Fine. Sometimes you don't. Like we are in these countries. But that's it. Now you are in this situation. Whether you like it or not. You have to keep that in mind. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is now looking at you from two angles. Yes, you are just you as an individual and what you do is only about yourself and everyone is responsible for themselves. But whether you like it or not, there is now a social duty. You now have a social responsibility. Another social responsibility that sometimes we don't think about. Maybe the majority of us, it depends on the ages here, maybe the majority of us are not parents yet. Some of us are. Others will become You don't think you have a duty towards your children? To your children, you are the model. Whether you like it or not, you are the model of religion. You are the model of the good person. Until the child develops critical thinking, maybe at 13, 14, 16, then they are really truly able to start distinguishing and say, yeah, maybe my parents have a weakness here. They could work a little bit more on that. Before then, you are setting them for life on what it means to be this type of human being, a Muslim, a follower of al Bayt, wasalam, that's what they know. Everyone else is secondary. You are the living proof. Every single day they see this. That's a duty that whether you accept it or not, whether you think about it or not, it's there. If you have younger siblings, you don't think that you're affecting them? They're not seeing how you behave, how you act? Again, not necessarily a burden or responsibility that you want to take on voluntarily, intentionally, but all of that is put on you. It's imposed on you. That's it. This is the reality of life. And this is what we're talking about when we're saying there's a social dimension. There's a social duty to knowing. The moment you know, if people associate you with knowing, that's an even more important additional burden that you represent religion. And if people don't know, you know. And God knows that you could do more. You could be better. Because you are influencing people. Sometimes you do just a little bit more. This more is not just for you. You are getting a multiplication, an amplification of your thawab because someone saw you do something good. Saw you be a little bit more disciplined. Have a little bit more patience. Be a little bit more compassionate. And your intention is, I don't really feel like doing this, but I know someone is maybe seeing me and it might influence them positively. That's it. That's what God wants. That's what amplifies or multiplies your reward. This is the social dimension. So in the next hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam the next hadith here we're talking about the theme of and again we've touched on a lot of these so these are just quick reminders. The first one from Imam Ali alayhi salam he's talking about hypocrisy. So he says The Those who are going to have the greatest burden from among all the people are the scholars who Exceed the limits. That's the mufrit. In Arabic, you'll see this um, binary or dichotomy use of two words, mufrit and mufarrat. Muferrat is the person who wastes. So, in one case, you are doing too little, in one case, you're doing too much. In this case, the mufrit is the person who goes too far, the mufrit is the person who exaggerates. Allah subhanahu Wa ta'ala has put lines. You cross the lines. So Muhammad Ali salam says, The people who will carry the greatest burden in this world, and we don't see it, but in the afterlife, are the scholars who exceed, who exaggerate, who go beyond. Okay, so again, we said the scholar, oftentimes in our mind we think it means only the person who has been studying religion for seven years and they have a huge turban on their head. No, we're all scholars. You're a scholar to the amount that you know. That's what you're a scholar about. You carry ilm. We have an image of ulama. What's alim? In Arabic, the construction of this word. Alim is someone who carries knowledge. It could be a little knowledge. It could be a lot of knowledge. Next hadith. From Imam al-Sadiq a.s. He says, There is this verse in the Qur'an, فَكُبْكِبُوا فِيهَا هُمْ وَالْغَاوُونَ He says, Imam sadiq says, نَزَلَتْ فِي قَوْمٍ وَصَفُوا عَدْلًا ثُمَّ خَالَفُوهُ إِلَىٰ غَيْرَهِ So in Surah al-Shu'ara, so 2694 verse 94, then they shall be toppled into it, one on top of each other. Into what? Into hell. This verse says, there are people who are going to be dumped into hell one over the other. So Imam Sadiq alayhi salam is saying, Who are these people? The verse doesn't really say, Who are these people and why are they being thrown this way into hell? Specifically, Imam Sadiq explains it. He says, It was revealed about people who described righteousness, justice, goodness. Then they did something that was the opposite. So those people say, Do this, this is good, this is the right thing, this is the right conduct, this is the right behavior but they act in a way that is contrary to this in arabic the imam says wasafu adlan when we say wasafu it could mean that they described the other meaning of wasafu is they prescribed prescribed in the sense of you know you go to a doctor and he prescribes he gives you a prescription he gives you a wasfa right So sometimes you can describe the good. Sometimes you prescribe it. You preach like I'm doing now. This is even worse. You say, do this. This is the right. This is what you have to do. It's not just that I can describe. Yeah, this is good. This is bad. No, I'm telling you, you have to do this. But I do the opposite. If you see me doing the opposite of what I just said, how effective is it that I tell you do this? Pray. Praying is really good. Help the poor. My action is completely opposite to this. Is it going to be effective? No. In fact, you may learn a lot more from my action than my words. If I acted the proper way, I may not even need to use that many words. You will learn from my action. But when I use my words and I act in an opposite way, in a contrary way, you're going to be stuck to my actions. So the punishment is much greater. And that's why the Imam says this is exactly how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala deals with these people. It's like they're things that are being just thrown on top of each other in hell, in the afterlife. There's this hadith, it's a little bit longer, so I'm reading it. Again, the point that we're talking about the social burden, the social dimension of carrying knowledge is towards the end, but I think the whole hadith again is very relevant. So we go through it, and it's a very important hadith. This is a theme in the narrations and the reports of Ahlul Bayt, This is an important theme that comes comes back in different ways. You have it here. In this hadith, the person who narrates the hadith, his name is Khalad. An Khalad, Abi Ali, Qal. Khalad, there's a few companions of Imam al-Baqir and Imam sadiq who have this name. Some of them we know for sure they're authentic. They were scholars, companions who were with the imams. Some of them were not authentic at all. And some of them we don't know about. So when they say Khalad, we don't know who Khalad bin someone, the son of. We don't know which Khalad it is. Okay, so difficult to assess the authenticity of the hadith. That's a, the technical dimension of this. And Khalad Abi Ali قال, قال عليه السلام وهو الله وأحسن الركوع والسجود. Of course, we'll repeat in English. وَكُونُوا أَطْوَعَ اللَّهِ لَنْ إلَّا بِالْوَرَعِ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ إلَّا Then he said, وَإِنَّ أَشَدَ النَّاسِ حَسْرَةً يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ لَمَنْ وَصَفَ عَدْلاً وَخَالَفَهُ إلَى غَيْرِهِ. وَهُوَ قَوْلُ اللَّهِ عَزَّ وَجَلَّ. And he recited verses of the Quran to corroborate this. So this companion says, Imam al-Sadiq a.s. said to us while giving us advice, fear God and perfect your ruku' and your sujood, your prostration. So when you perform your prayer, make sure that your ruku' is perfect and make sure that your sujood is perfect. In other words, make sure that you pray your prayers properly, perfectly. Every part of your prayer is well done. Okay. So fear God and perfect your ruku' and your sujood. And be the most obedient among God's servants. For you will not achieve our fellowship. You will not achieve the status of being our follower, the Imam says, the follower of Ahlul Bayt, except through piety, except through Wara, 'ah, the Imam says. Wara 'ah is piety or worship or devotion. And you will not reach that which is with God except with action. So reward, heaven, paradise, you will not achieve that except through action. And then the part of the hadith that is directly relevant to our topic, the worst people in regret on the day of judgment, so the people who will have the most regret on the day of judgment, are those who described or once again prescribed, Righteousness, then they did the opposite. Okay, so here there's a few points in this hadith. From reading this hadith, our point here is to talk about the social duty or the social responsibility. The people that the imam is talking to, who are they? One category of who they are is very clear. The second category we can understand it indirectly. And the first the first category, clearly these are Shia. The Imam is talking to his followers. He's talking to the lovers of Ehl al-Bayt. That's why he tells them, you are not going to achieve the status of being our followers except through what? Except through wara? except through devotion. It has to show in your action that you are our devotees, our followers, our lovers. This is a very big theme, very applicable to all of us, to our communities. We often repeat this. It's enough. You love al Bayt, that's enough. Is this what the Imam is saying? Is it enough? The Imam is saying, to be able to say, you have our walaya, you have to show it in your wara'ah. You have to show it in your devotion. You have to show it in your conduct. That's how you show wilayah. You don't achieve our wilayah. لَن tana. You don't achieve, you don't reach our wilayah except through وَرَعَ That completely flips the equation for a lot of us. And then the imam answers the second question. The second issue that we often hear. That's it. You love Ahl bayt automatically you're going to heaven. Paradise is guaranteed. Here the Imam says, tanalu And you will not reach that is that which is with God. Heaven, paradise, reward, you will not achieve what is with God except through illa amal. Just saying I love Ahl bayt good for you. The Imam, your Imam that you say, I love and I want to show the wilaya towards him, he's telling you the only way to achieve these ranks and paradise and the reward of God is through action. And our wilaya only equals to wara'. You have to show God fearing, you have to show piety, you have to show worship. This is a very clear equation that the Imam is giving. So, first layer that this applies to is all of us. The imam is clearly talking to the Shia. The second layer, this applies even more, the imam seems to be talking to scholars. These are not just random people sitting there. They're probably close students of the imam. They constantly attend his lectures, his lessons. They write them down. They go and pass them on to other people. They are... Seekers of knowledge, they are ulama' in today's world. So if you are in that category, then this applies to you even more. Just that you carry knowledge is not enough, the imam is saying, to be called one of our lovers, one of our followers, that you have our walaya. It's not enough. It has to show in your wara' in your devotion. And the only way to achieve what God has to the alim now, It's not just because you're carrying the knowledge. That's not enough. You have to show it through action, through amal. The only way to show it is through amal. So this applies even more to the case of the scholar. The more knowledge we have, the more this applies to us. The less knowledge to each according to their level of knowledge. The more you know, the more it has to show in your conduct. The second point from this hadith, and again it's a very big point and a theme in the ahadith of Ahlul Bayt. We don't have time to spend too much on it, we're just highlighting the points. One of the themes in the ahadith of Ahlul Bayt when they talk directly to their Shia, in most of the ahadith, al Bayt are not directly talking to their Shia, they're talking in general because that was the setting, because they couldn't, and so on and so forth. In many ahadith, when they're talking directly to their Shia, they are very clear, very explicit. They don't leave ambiguity. They expect a lot more of their followers. If you want to be a follower of Ahlul Bayt, you have to make them proud. You have to earn that title. You can be a normal, typical, generic Muslim, that's... That's one way to put it, to simplify it. You can accept to be a generic Muslim or you can be a follower of Ahlul Bayt. If you want the title of a follower of Ahlul Bayt, the standard is much higher. The imam doesn't say, I expect you to pray. He says, I expect your ruku' and your sujood to be perfect. Very different standard. You can be a generic Muslim, the vanilla version. Everybody can achieve that. You'd simply need to pray. Or you want to be my follower, Imam al-Sadiq salam says. In that case, I have to see it in your ruku' and your sujood. I have to see it in every part of your prayer. That's how much you care. These are our followers. Our followers are not simply people who say, but I love al Bayt. That's what the Imam wants to emphasize. And this applies, the Imam here gave one example. He just mentioned a couple and we'll come back to that point. A couple of things in the prayer. If you were to go in many other ahadith, the imams talk about many other aspects in our religion. And in each time, the imams make it very clear that in each thing in our religion, in each teaching in our religion, they expect their followers to be the best in that thing. Helping others, you have to be the best. Performing the Adhan, you have to be the best. Knowing the Quran, you have to be the best. These are explicitly mentioned in the Ahadith. And inshallah, we're going to come back to that later in the series. On what the Imams expect from their followers in general. This is just a hint in this Hadith. The Imam mentions it in passing. To to achieve the title, the rank of our fellowship, it has to show in your ruku and your Sujood. The third point in this hadith has to do with this ruku'ah and sujood. The fact that the imam mentions ruku'ah and sujood is not really about ruku'ah and sujud. Ruku'ah and sujood are really important in the salah. If you're studying fiqh, if you're studying Islamic law, you want to understand how to perform every part of the prayer, the imam in general is talking about perfecting your prayer. And here also, We can look at it from two different angles. On one side, why does the imam single out the prayer? In one way, we would say the imam is talking about the one act of worship that we consider to be unanimously among all Muslims to be the single most important act of worship in our religion, the salah. He is talking in general about performing your obligatory five prayers. And the imam says, to be my follower, every part of your prayer has to be perfect, including your ruku' and your sujood. The imam does not even say, you have to pray. You have to always perform your prayers. He's beyond that point. He says, every part of the prayer has to be perfect. And of course, he's singling out prayer because of its importance in our religion. You all know the hadith. We all learned them when we we're three, four, five years old. In qubilat, qubila In ruddat, If the prayer is accepted, everything else will be accepted. If the prayer is rejected, everything will be rejected. What if I don't pray? I'm not even meeting the minimum threshold of my religion. So there's a lot of work to do to enter into religion in a conduct way at my behavioral level, yes, in my heart, I'm saying I'm a Muslim. It has to show in my actions. The first action is God wants you to pray. God wants you to see, stand and perform a prayer. Talk to him five times a day. If you, when you say I'm a Muslim, I have submitted to God, you have to do what God says. This is step one. If nothing else is done, that's step one, to enter this definition. That's one way to understand why the imam singles out the prayer. The second reason is no, the imam is simply insisting on the prayer. It's not only about the prayer. Now we have to apply this thinking to a lot of other things. But because of its importance, the imam singles out the prayer to insist on it. Not to say it's only about prayer. Now that my ruku and sujud are perfect, that's it. I have achieved the rank of walayah. No. Clearly I'm missing the point if that's how I think. Now this thinking that my ruku and my sujud and my prayer are perfect means this is how I have to think about fasting. I have to think about helping others. I have to think about having transactions with others and not cheating and not stealing, making sure that my my respect and my obedience to my parents, whatever you could think of that are the teachings of our religion, now has to meet this standard. Every part of that is going now to be perfected to achieve walaya. That's the second way to understand the singling out of the prayer. The last point around this is, of course, once again, That in our religion and this is again a theme something that always comes back you see that the reward and the punishment they match the responsibility so in this case what's the responsibility there's two one of them is the responsibility of being a follower of Ahlul Bayt that's an additional responsibility so you want to attain the additional reward of showing walayah, of achieving walayah, that's an additional layer. You have to show it with an additional effort. Fair in our religion. It's a mathematical equation. Nothing is free. You put in the work, you get the reward. You get the rank. You don't put it in, you don't get it. The imam is very clear. You want to achieve with what God has for you, you have to show it with work. You want to achieve a higher status and achieve our wilayah. You want to reach the rank, the title of being our follower. You have to show it with wara, a higher level of devotion. It has to show, and the more you show it, the more reward there is. And the opposite, as we saw with the Imam, very clearly saying, those are the one who are, the ones who are describing righteousness and acting against it, are going to be the people who. Are gonna show, express, experience the most regret in the afterlife. And the day of judgment is referred to as Yom al hasra It's a day where every human being is constantly rethinking, reliving all their shortcomings. There is so much opportunity that I wasted, so much more that I could have done. Now I can't do anything, I'm in the afterlife. The opportunity to act is done. And that's why the day of judgment, the day of resurrection is called Al Hasra. It's the day of regret. Miniature of it in this world, go to an exam. Once you're in the exam and you start writing the exam, that's it. However much you prepared for that exam, that's what you're stuck with. You prepared really well, you're going to perform really well. There's nothing more you can do now, live in the exam. You didn't prepare, you're going to regret in that moment. Maybe you're not going to feel it before. And you may forget eventually after. But in that moment, you're going to feel, you're going to experience the regret. You're going to say, I had that many hours, that many days, that many months to prepare. I wasted it. And now, that's it. There is nothing more that can be done. You experience a regret. Talk is cheap. We have to imagine ourselves in this situation. But in that case, it's easy. You say, oh, it's a course. I'll take another one. I'll repeat the course. I don't even need the degree. The day of the afterlife, we don't have those other alternatives. Those other options are not there. That's it. This is what will determine your infinite future, your eternal future. So, of course, the regret is, as they say, commensurate. To the extent that you realize what's going to happen next, your regret is going to be equal to that. From all of that regret, the Imam says, and those who will carry the greatest of regret from everyone, and everyone will feel regret. That's why it's called the Day of Regret. From everyone, it's going to be those who described or prescribed, preached good, righteousness, and they did the opposite. And this is again a theme. This is the hypocrisy. This is how it shows in the afterlife. In the next hadith, again this is a hadith that summarizes a lot of what we've been talking about, a longer hadith. But it includes a lot of these points. The, the narrator says So the narrator says I heard Imam Ali salam say I heard the holy prophet say there are two starving people in this world who never get satiated they never feel full because they're hungry. Who are they? The person, the one starving for this world, and the person who is starving for knowledge. Those two, Imam Ali, salam says, the person who is obsessed with learning and the person who is obsessed with their love for this world, those two they never have enough. They always want more. They never feel full. And then the Imam continues. وَمَنْ تَنَاوَلَهَا مِنْ غِيْرِ حِلِّهَا هَلَكْ إِلَّا أَنْ يَتُوبَ وَيُرَاجَعَ So the imam says, so if someone limits himself in this world to that which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has permitted, then this person is going to be safe. And if he grabs that which is not permissible, you reach for things that are beyond what God has allowed, this person will perish unless he repents and goes back. And we talked, last couple of lectures, we talked about the conditions of repentance. You'll remember the Surah At-Tawbah, verse uh, 17, I think. إِنَّمَا التَّوْبَةُ عَلَى اللَّهِ لِلِّذِينَ يَعْمَلُونَ السُّوءَ بِجَهَالَةٍ ثُمَّ يَتُوبُونَ مِنْ قَرِيبِ The person who, when they perform the sin, they repent, they feel regret, and they repent quickly. It's not that you don't perform a sin. Allah wa ta'ala says, perform the sin. But you have to regret it right away after. You realize what happened and you regret. And you ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's repentance right away. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, It's upon me to grant them forgiveness. In Surah At-Tawbah. Okay. So the Imam Ali says, Unless this person trespasses, unless they are someone who trespasses, then remembers and asks for repentance. Then, here are the two conditions. So here the imam says two conditions. Who is the person who is going to be rescued, who will be saved? And if someone takes knowledge from its people... And we talked about the importance of the teacher and who the true scholar is, and it's Ahlul Bayt and none other. And anyone who is a scholar has to represent what they're saying. And to the extent that you are repeating what Ahlul Bayt are saying or you're bringing back to them, then you are a scholar. In that case, you meet this first condition. So the Imam says, and if someone takes knowledge from its people, one, and acts upon it, two, he will be saved. Those are the two can. It's not enough that I carry knowledge. And it's not enough that I carry information that is distorted, that may not be real knowledge. I need both. I need to know the real path and I have to act on it. I have to walk in that direction. He will be safe. And if he seeks the world with it, he will perish. Sometimes, even all of that is there. You got the knowledge from the right people and you acted on the knowledge, you have knowledge that you have to pray, and you perform the prayer. Okay. So what's the issue? The imam says, and if he seeks the world with it. The point of the knowledge is what? Are you only gaining the knowledge for this world? Is that the point of your knowledge? To be used for worldly gain, so that people know that you know? so that people respect you for knowing, so that you become someone who is close to the ruler, and so on and so forth. Why are you gaining this knowledge? What do you plan to do with this knowledge? The imam says, if he seeks the world with this knowledge, if that was the point of gaining the knowledge, he will perish. And that will be his only share. In other words, there's no reward, there's no other good that will come from that knowledge. Because the point of that knowledge was for this world, and this world is done. It was used up for this world. You get nothing else beyond it. Then, this is where it starts to get back to the relevant topic that we're talking about. The Imam says, Al Ulama halak. There are two types of scholars, he says. A scholar who acts based on his knowledge, he will be rescued. And a scholar who neglects his knowledge, he will perish. وَإِنَّ This is again the point. See that there's an additional layer. It's not that you don't act based on your knowledge, you get punished just like everybody else who gets punished for not doing what they know. No, no, you're a scholar. There's always an additional layer. Now see, every time it's described in a different way. Here the imam says, And the people of hell are harmed or are annoyed from the stench of the scholar who neglects his religion, uh, who neglects his knowledge. So they're all being punished together in hell. But the people of hell are harmed or annoyed by the punishment of this person who is a scholar of knowledge. So clearly, his punishment is different. Why? Because he was a scholar. He knew better. He knew more. It should have shown. They were not scholars. They were normal people. This In this case, he's a scholar. They get harmed from his punishment. So what is he going through? And then the imam continues, وَإِنَّ أشد أهل So the worst and those who will be with the greatest regret and heartbreak among the inhabitants of hell. Again, the same theme of regret. And by the way, a lot of our scholars emphasize on this. When people don't understand, you read the Qur'an, you read the punishment of hell or the pleasures of heaven, we tend to focus on the material. All of our scholars say, but the material is nothing compared to the psychological and the spiritual. And anyone who has enough experience in life understands this. There are layers upon layers of pleasure or punishment and harm beyond the physical. So this is one example. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not only punish physically. The afterlife is not just a physical punishment. There's an insistence in the Quran. If you go back through the verses of the Quran that talk about hell, for instance, and punishment, Or those who were punished in this world before the next. Those who fought the prophets and the messengers, for instance. They are explicitly mentioned as having been punished in this world and the next. And in a lot of cases, the Qur'an insists more on the non-physical. It says they had shame. They had a shameful punishment in this world. And in the afterlife, they will have a greater shame. It will be even more shameful. The insistence is not always just on the physical. There's a psychological and spiritual dimension to this. So this is where, see the imam is saying, and those who will be with the greatest regret and heartbreak among the inhabitants of hell. Who are they? رَجُلٌ عَبْدًا إِلَى اللَّهِ لَهُ فَأَطَاعَ اللَّهِ فَدَخَلَ الْجَنَّةِ وَأُدْخِلَ who is this person who will have the greatest heartbreak and regret on the day of judgment, Imam Ali Alayhi salam says. He says, will be the one who called someone to God. You are inviting someone to God. To worship God, to believe in God, to act like God wants. So he answered him and obeyed. This person that you called to God, listened to you. And they came and they started obeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala while the caller himself enters hellfire. You call someone to God, I call you guys to God, and you listen to me, and you start worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and you become better people. But I don't act based on what I'm telling you. I do the opposite. So he says, while the caller himself the one who is inviting people to God himself enters hellfire for neglecting what he knows and following his desire and disobeying God. This, the imam says, is going to be the person who has the greatest heartbreak and regret on the day of judgment. And then he says, Innama huma ithnan." He explains this last sentence that he just said. He says, إِنَّمَا هُمَا فَأَمَّا الْهَوَىٰ فَيَصُدُّ عَنَ الْحَقِّ وَأَمَّا طُولُ الْأَمَلْ الْآخِرَةِ He says, truly, they are two. The Imam doesn't say they are two what, but you would understand from what he's saying. It's, there are two problems, the Imam says. There are two causes, two issues. Following of desire and the lengthening of hope. That your hope is very lengthy, extended very far in the future. Okay, As for the desire. The imam explains. He says, ask for the desire. What's the issue with following desire? The imam says what's the issue with it. As for following desire. It bars from the truth. When you follow desire, you're blinded. So it prevents you from seeing the truth because the desire is there, right in front of you. That's what you see. You don't see beyond it. And as for the long-lasting of hopes, it makes one forget the afterlife. You think that you're going to live in this world forever. If you really realize that you are dying and leaving this world, you can't live in the same way. But we are neglectful of that part. So we live as though we're here forever. It's not even that my life is going to end And there is an afterlife. Forget the afterlife. It's just my life will end. Even that part we forget. Even though we see it around us all the time. So the imam says, this part, this lengthening of hopes, makes you forget the afterlife. And following desires makes you blind, blocks from the truth. It makes you blind to the truth. So there was one, I think, point very clear in this one. We're not going to insist on it. In Ahl al nari nadamatan, so the people who are getting the worst of regret and heartbreak and punishment, that one is very clear. Inshallah, the responsibility of knowledge equals more punishment and more reward. You do based on knowledge, you get more reward. You act against the knowledge that you know, more punishment. That's one. The second one. And this is a very important point that the Imam makes here. He simplified all the problems into two. Imam Ali alayhi salam here, he is reducing all of the complexities of why we're not good and you know all of the issues we have to deal with. He simplified them to two causes. He said it comes down to two problems. That your hope in this world is too long, one, and that you follow your desires blindly. So you don't see the truth anymore because you're just following the desire wherever it goes. It brings you into good, you follow the good. It brings you bad, you follow the bad. It doesn't matter because you're following your desire. So Imam Ali alayhi salam says, it's only two problems. At the end of the day, there's only two problems. So that's the key here. We could spend lectures upon lectures just on this. The Imam summarized all the bad that we do into these two statements following of desires, and lengthening of hopes. That's two. And of course the third point, and I think we talked a little bit about it, so we'll just end with this. This is a very scary image. The Holy Quran uses it a lot in different ways. This idea that others are basically using you. All of us, we try to help others. We want to be someone who influences people towards being better, bringing people closer to God, one way or another. We all do this, whether we realize it or not. If you understand enough of the teachings of Islam, I assure you that you're doing some of that in your life. Where you can, you try to be influencing people towards the good. And some of us will go even further. We'll actually call people to God. We'll try to guide people. We'll try to make people see the truth more, see Ahlul Bayt more, become better people. So that, the first part of the equation applies to us. Maybe more, maybe less, but it applies to all of us. But The second part, when we're calling people to be good, are we good? That's the second part of the equation. Because otherwise, this example, this image, and this hadith, and in many verses of the Quran, is going to apply to us. The Imam says the worst of those people in regret and heartbreak is the one who calls to God and he does the opposite. You bring people to prayer and you don't pray. You bring people to God, you're not really attached to God. You bring people to the Quran, you don't really follow the Quran. You are doing good, but you don't even, you are bringing them to the good, but you're not following it yourself. And that's a very powerful image. And we're going to see it in a few other hadith. We're going to stop for here for today. But you're going to see that image. But the image is very clear. You have to imagine it on the Day of Judgment. You're there. There are people who are standing right there who are going to heaven because of you. They're getting rewards because of you. And you're being taken to the opposite end. Why? And they are going to ask them. We're going to see the hadith. They're going to tell them, we were guided because of you. We're entering heaven because of you. Because of your training, because of your education, because of your science. Where are they taking you? Why are you ending ending up in hell? They say, I did not follow the advice I gave you. I did not follow my own advice to you. So, in words, it's cheap. You have to really put yourself in that situation. And I would say, again, to go back to what I said earlier, don't think about the scholar when these hadith are talking about the scholar as being someone else than you. This applies to all of us. It applies now and it applies even more in the future. One way or another, it applies to all of us. All of us are trying to help someone and guide someone. It could be our children, our siblings, our families, our friends, people we work with, other people we don't know. Don't put yourself in a situation where you have called people to do good and to be better and then on the day of judgment when everything is revealed you end up being going in the opposite direction and they are getting their rewards and they end up in heaven because of you. That's an additional layer of punishment there. Additional layer of regret and shame there. So this applies even more. Imagine yourself as a parent, for instance. Make sure that the act, and this is, of course, not to discourage anyone from preaching and not to discourage anyone from guiding others and influencing others and bringing them to the truth and to God and to religion and to Ahlul Bayt. Of course, we're not saying that. We're just saying, remember this image, this experience that's waiting all of us in the afterlife, so that our actions continuously meet and match what we're preaching and what we're saying. Because otherwise, that image is very shameful. The Holy Quran talks about this, you'll remember. We all know Surah Al Jum'ah. It talks about those who are like the mule, the donkey. Why? Because the donkey carries Yahmil Asfara, he carries books, he carries scriptures. The Quran says. It says their example is like, like the image of a donkey who carries scriptures. Who benefits from the scriptures? The donkey? No. But he's carrying the scriptures to people. And the people get them and open them and use them and are guided and they end up in heaven. What about the person who carries all this knowledge? They're like the donkey. This is the image the Quran presents and many others. This is one of them. I use it because we have all recited Surah Al-Jum'ah. It, the verse has to hit us. كَمَثَلِ الْحِمَارِ يَحْمِلُ Asfara. The image is the image of a donkey who is carrying scriptures. What worse image can there be that people benefit from the knowledge and the guidance and the information contained in the scriptures and they are guided but this person is at the end, they are a donkey. They completely lack reason, completely lack wisdom, judgment. So they don't benefit from what they're carrying to others. So inshallah, let's stop here. And we continue with the characteristics of the scholar and the teacher. Next time we meet inshallah. ala Muhammadin wa ala tayyibin So if there are questions, concerns, comments, happy to take them. Now, lecture, um, just to like, uh, like add to the, or not add yours was amazing, but just
1: uh, like a little...
0: Yeah, comment, I, yeah.
1: I think to make it make sense for like uh, us readers, when well, you mentioned the fact that um, you could be, uh, you could be like sending someone or like giving out your knowledge to someone and that leads to him entering heaven, but you're not. If I'm an outsider and I'm looking at this, it doesn't make sense. Well, I was the reason he entered heaven? Allah is the most merciful. So how come I'm not getting a reward for entering him heaven? And I feel like the answer is uh, comes from Imam Ali When he says uh, in Dua uh, al-Tawassul, he says... Uh, which means your religion, your religion, hold on into it. Because the, even the sin in your religion could be forgiven. But the good without the religion can be forgiven. Which means that it leads to the prayer and your connection with Allah.
0: So, so how do you understand when you say religion here? How do you understand it? What the Imam, when he said your religion, why is that the key? I think you're completely right. Because I think for others listening to what you're saying.
1: Which is like exactly what you talked about, which means uh, when the Imam S.A.W. talks about perfecting your sujood and your ruku'ah, which means perfecting your prayer, but there's like many layers to it, which means your physical layer. yeah, And then uh, it's reflected on your uh, psychological layer, which means like every act that which means every action should be considered a prayer if you put your thought
0: into it and your intention like even eating you know what I mean? <laughs> no no you, absolutely you're right I love it it's, it's always the deeper I love it it's good any other comments questions okay wa <laughs>